Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Lawrence Simon. The show, as always, is called The Stories We Live By. Uh, and today I would like to talk about politicians, um, formal politicians. In one of my earlier shows, I did talk about the politics of everyday life and talked about the fact that we're all politicians. And I talked about the different kinds of politics, democratic, humanistic, and authoritarian and totalitarian. But what I want to talk about today are the specific types of people who become great men, who seek great power, whether it's in this country or in any other country. Um, what motivates me, as I said at the end of my last show, is an increasing fear, a really increasing anxiety uh, that the leaders of our world, the leaders, those who, who tell us what uh, is good for us, and I will talk about that, people who seem to know what is good for other people, um, are leading the world into a chaos, into a, a, a conflagration. Um, increasingly, I hear people talk about a civilizational war, a war between the Muslim world and the rest of the world, uh, although it's not clear uh, when the world divides itself up on, into two sides, determined to destroy the other, uh, where the Buddhists will lie, where the um, Taoists will lie, uh, where other factions, the Hindus, uh, will plant their flags. Um, certainly the, the Hindu nation of, of India and the Muslim nation of Pakistan both have atomic bombs and both seem to have leaders willing, uh, uh, with, with not much provocation, to threaten to use these bombs. Uh, I was coming out of a tennis game with a friend of mine who uh, doesn't share my political view. We don't vote for the same people generally. And he looked at these little children online, uh, happy and smiling, and he said, uh, God only knows what kind of world we're giving them. And it seems to me that unless we understand uh, some of the people who lead us, and then understand our role in their leadership, uh, we are going in a very bad direction. Uh, this unease is shared by almost everybody. Now, the focus of, of so much of, of the, the concern about leadership in this country right now focuses on George Bush and his administration and his policies. And I'm not going to get involved in the partisan politics on this show. I have very deep feelings about what's going on and the war and the way it's been managed. But more and more people, many people who voted for George Bush, also keep asking me, well, you're a psychologist. Can you explain him? Uh, explain his behavior. Is he crazy? Uh, does he have some kind of a severe mental illness? How afraid do you think we should be? And my response is, I'm not going to talk about George Bush as an individual. George Bush, to me, is a very scary individual, uh, like these other people, even people who voted for him once and maybe even twice. He's a scary individual. And what makes him scary is that he's hard to figure out. Uh, there are a lot of scary people in the world, but, but if we understand their motive, uh, then we're not as frightened. We get a sense that... Uh, 
we understand where they're going and where the controls are, uh, what lines they won't step over. Um, one of my friends who's concerned this way asked me, begged me, in effect, to read a book called Bush on the Couch. It's a book by Justin A. Franklin, M.D., and uh, I read the book because he wanted me uh, to be a, in a position to explain and discuss with him this book. And it seems to me that, and you know my criticisms if you've been listening to my show of psychiatry, uh, this piece of psychobabble is absolutely the wrong way of going about the uh, understanding of Bush or Bush as part of the leadership of the world because it seems to me that if we understand how leadership works and thinks, uh, if we analyze the stories they tell us, maybe we can get an insight uh, into what our role might be to prevent the catastrophes that have already occurred in the world, World War One and World War Two in the last century, and now what's being called a civilizational war, which I'm convinced no one can possibly win. If this war isn't diverted, uh, if we don't find some way, and I know I sound so naive and idealistic that we uh, beat uh, our swords into plowshares, if we don't find a way of living like brothers and sisters, uh, we are uh, in for a terrible, terrible time. I'm 68, so my time is short, relatively short, compared to my grandchildren and these other little children I see about. Uh, I don't know what kind of world they will live in, but uh, like most of us, I'm frightened of it. Uh, so let me, let me talk a little bit about why I thought this book about Bush was terrible in general because uh, of why psychiatry to me is so damn irrelevant here. Um, the book starts with a, a theoretical formulation by one of the well-known analysts of mid-century, mid-20th century, a woman, an English woman named Melanie Klein. Um, and he, you can see as he lays out the theory that Bush has to conform to the theory. The facts of Bush's behavior uh, have to conform to the theory. Also, um, what he's after is a diagnosis. What's wrong with Bush? And like all psychiatric thinking, it says that the problem is in Bush, or it's in the leader. And after 40 years of being a psychologist, um, I've never had a person too crazy to not to see that their problems lie between them and other people, that this is a solution to life's difficulties and life's struggles, and certainly um, there's no illness. I've talked about this many times. There is no biological basis to most of this behavior. If George Bush has a biological problem in his brain, uh, and again, that can only be done and proven by medical tests, uh, which haven't been done and won't be done, then perhaps Bush uh, has problems due to heavy drinking and other drug ingestion, which he admits uh, was a big part of his life up until about the time he was 40 years old. So the problem is in him and not between him and us, because as I'm going to point out, I think that the problem of leadership it, it relates in part to the way followers treat leaders, the way we as citizens have abrogated our citizens' responsibility in all of this, and um, 
given power to somebody who is driven by something, who is moving towards something that most of us don't understand because most of us don't want to be leaders. So to call somebody a megalomaniac, to say he's narcissistic, to, to these are the words that Franklin uses about Bush, uh, because, you know, uh, uh, his opening chapter uh, says that Bush was a clown as a child and he sought the spotlight, the spotlight because uh, he wasn't treated well by his mother. He didn't have a warm, affectionate background, which may or may not be true again. Uh, this is all applied um, based upon hearsay. Nobody really knows whether Barbara Bush loved her children. Uh, you know, the idea that, that uh, she didn't express her affections openly to her children uh, mean, could mean that uh, as, as a wasp, as a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, she is one of those who believes in public and lives by an idea in public that you don't uh, show affection, you don't show your emotions in public. But whether or not this determined the relationship between her and her children, nobody knows who isn't there. And again, these psychiatrists and, and psychologists and analysts who make all of these prognostications and, and, and announcements uh, are, are saying things based upon pure theory and pure conjecture. So, what is it about individuals? Well, uh, one of the things I live by as a dictum is Lord Acton's dictum. He was an Englishman who said, power corrupts and power, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Most people don't know the third line, which is great men are almost always bad men. Now, the word bad, again, is like saying someone is crazy. It's a moral judgment that doesn't explain psychologically why a person seeks greatness. Why do people seek power over the lives of other people? If you listen to the stories that the politicians tell us, it seems to beg a belief. If you listen to all of the candidates, Democrat and Republican, the reason they're running for high office has nothing to do ever with their needs. These people paint the picture of themselves as not having needs. They don't seek power for money, for fame. They don't seek power, uh, as I often say, the men, to get the babes. And we know that, uh, particularly when Clinton was, was president, uh, he proved that powerful men act as an aphrodisiac on many women. Uh, I'm thinking of the, of, the, of the young woman whose dress finally led to uh, the hypocritical impeachment of, of, of uh, Clinton. But the image of this young man, woman under a desk um, performing oral sex on Bill Clinton while he talked to a senator uh, on the telephone, this to me had nothing to do with sex. Uh, it, sex was the vehicle, power was really the motive. Why do people seek such power? The President of the United States has within a certain number of feet uh, a man with a box, and that box has a button and a phone, if I understand the technology correct, correct that could launch enough uh, atomic weaponry to literally blow up the world. When these individuals seek this power, when they tell us how selfless they are, I get scared. Who has the ability 
to manage such responsibility. And I don't see them trembling with fear or worrying about the mistakes they will make. If you are a parent, you know your mistakes resonate with your children. If you're an individual who has great power, your mistakes resonate and can resonate around the world. They don't affect just your family. They don't affect yourself. They can affect everybody. So that there is this need for a power and a need to project perfect goodness, a saintliness. And it seems to me there are no saints. I've never met a saint. I'm waiting for someone to run for president and, and make clear that he's a human being or she's a human being that has needs and can recognize that perhaps what drives them 24 hours a day to talk to hundreds and millions of people, to keep telling people why they should uh, uh, give them authority in their lives because they know what's good for the people, uh, why these individuals uh, are driven by what need. What is it that makes them blind to their own needs? Because I think they are blind to those needs. And the result is that so many of these leaders so casually go to war and send people to war and make economic decisions that can affect millions negatively without ever asking, what kind of suffering will this cause? What kind of human suffering? How will this disrupt lives? Who benefits and who hurts? Now, for myself, I would be paralyzed to make such decisions. I could not ever be president. If the United States were attacked and were threatened with obliteration, I'm not sure I could obliterate the rest of the world to protect my part of the world. Now, you can hate me and you could dislike me all you like, but I avoid such power because the idea that I could choose to be the instrument that destroys and damages and maims so many lives is simply something that staggers me that makes me paralyzed with a kind of an anxiety and a dread uh, that I don't know I could overcome in, in, in that situation. I remember as a child having a fight with another boy, and I was losing the fight, and I desperately kicked him between the legs, and he went down like he was axed. And that night I went to his apartment to say, you know, say hello and say I'm sorry because I knew I'd hurt him. And I saw the injury I did to, to his groin. And I was sickened. I threw up. And it seems to me that so many of the world leaders seem not to be sickened. They seem to be cheered by the kind of damage that is done to people on their orders because of how easily they see themselves as so good, so powerful, so knowledgeable that their decisions must be the correct decisions regardless of who gets hurt and what kind of damage is done uh, uh, in the name of their knowing what's good. If you look at the stories and the behaviors of powerful people, rarely do they seek to have people around them who argue with them, who will say uh, in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in a dialogue, in, in a respectful dialogue, I think you're wrong about this. They seem to seek people who confirm 
not only their knowledge, their omnipotent knowledge, but their infinite goodness, their perfection, so that their decisions have to be the right decisions. We know that whistleblowers uh, are rarely thanked. Uh, the powerful and large organizations make decisions, uh, and those who warned about the dangers are very often the ones who are most punished. I remember sitting around uh, with meetings with the president of the college that I, I worked at. Uh, he was a president there for 25 years and needed to hear constantly, what a great man, what a great educator, well, how his decisions were all the very best decisions. And the mocking of those who might disagree with those decisions by the individuals that he surrounded himself with who flattered him powerfully and endlessly about how great he was and how good he was and how we should be thanking him 24 hours a day on our legs, on our, on our knees, that, that this man was so good. And how most of us who disagreed and understood that he was a prodigiously talented individual said nothing. We cast down our eyes. And even if we didn't join those who were critical, uh, uh, the very few who were critical, uh, and if we didn't join the psychophants, the ones who kissed up to the power in order that they may benefit in some way and, and have a bit of his glory on them, um, we didn't do enough and we didn't say enough. We just never did. And that seems to me part of the dynamic that keeps the powerful powerful and doesn't, in effect, uh, let them moderate or examine what their own needs are. And the needs for most of us to be so perfectly good is an underlying feeling, an intolerable feeling that somehow we're defective and we're very bad. I've talked about this before. I talk about it again. It's living in a time warp that we're perfectly bad, like little children who've been sent to bed because we've been defined as bad by our parents, whom we do see as perfect and realistically, in, at least in our own lives, as all-powerful. This is a, a, a reenactment over and over again, it seems to me, of being little children in our own minds and being afraid to stand up to those of power, even though we outnumber those of power by the million to one, by the millions to one. Um, I'm watching now what I see in so many unhappy families with unhappy children who are trying to deaden feelings of, of, of uh, feeling an intolerable anxiety and a feeling that they're bad as children that they're defective in some way and can't get from their parents or their teachers or their clergy a release of this kind of a feeling. Uh, overeating, acting out, clowning around, uh, ultimately in adolescence, drugs. Uh, it seems to me, and I could be completely wrong about this, the longer the war goes on in Iraq and the greater the uneasiness, the more people seem to be eating themselves into obesity. The obesity rate, rates are driving up in the United States. Diabetes is at epidemic levels. It's rampant because of the way people are eating. Uh, and eating like that very often is a way of trying to satisfy and soothe emotional pain in the same way uh, that the breast 
and the bottle and food soothes it in children. Love gets expressed so easily with human beings as food, as rich, creamy foods. Okay? So, what we have, I do think, is a serious situation. Um, let me tell you about a moment where I was proud to be a human being. And there are such moments, although uh, increasingly I'm ashamed to be a human being. And when I look at, at uh, the way in which people behave all over the world, terrorists blowing up themselves and somebody else's children in the belief that that's going to send them to heaven, I'm ashamed to be human. And you would say, well, wait a second, we're not like that. Well, I do believe Harry Stack Sullivan was a wonderful psychiatrist back in the first half of the 20th century. And he said, uh, we are all more human than otherwise. Man is much more simply human than otherwise. And that if we do look into our own souls, if we look into the darkness and the pain in our own selves, the fears that we have, and admit to them, if we recognize how little we do know, and recognize that these people who tell us how much they know without demonstrating to us that they have ever such knowledge, if we see them and ourselves as human, if we see them and ourselves as equal, we will behave very differently. And this was a moment when um, uh, Elie Wiesel, the famous writer, who got a lot of his education, unfortunately, in the death camps of the Nazis, where the first night there his parents were killed, taken from him and killed. Um, he was given the Medal of Freedom by Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan at that time was uh, going to Bitburg Cemetery to put a wreath on the unknown soldier in Germany. And uh, it was pointed out that there were Nazis buried in uh, Bitburg Cemetery. And when he was given his medal uh, publicly on television in front of millions of people, Elie Wiesel simply said, Mr. President, with all due respect, it's not your place to go to Bitburg. And everybody gasped and pulled their hair. How could he possibly say that? And when he was asked afterwards, Wiesel said, as an adult, as a citizen, as a human being, I'm paraphrasing, please, it is our duty, it is our right to speak truth to power. We need to speak truth to ourselves. We need to speak truth to power. Truth has to be as we see it, as we understand it, what we speak. I don't hear most politicians speak truth. They speak what they're told to say that will satisfy the infant, the child, and all of us. I will take care of you. How? I have a plan. Tell me the plan. Well, you're not able to understand the plan because for security reasons or nationalistic reasons or whatever the reasons, we have the information. You don't need it. Trust me. I know what's good for you. Many philosophers and many psychologists have come to recognize, many wise people have come to recognize that perhaps trust me when you don't know me, when you know I'm speaking babble to you, Trust me, I know what's good for you, especially I know what's good for you, are potentially the most dangerous words in the entire vocabulary of any language. I know what's good for you. Do you know what's good for yourself? Do you know what's good for your children? Do you see your children? Do you spend time with them? 
Most of the people I know want to come home from work at the end of the day. They want a meal. They want to play with their children. They want children. They don't want power. They want the power to live their own lives. They want to be able to exercise their freedoms. They want to be able to relax. They want to turn down. Instead, these individuals who seek power, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Why doesn't it wear them down? I believe it is because they are not contained, they're not connected to their own pain, and therefore they're not connected to the pain of other human beings that they are supposedly serving. And it is that that leads to the disaster over and over again that these great but almost always bad people bring on us with our complicity. Why, if we're afraid of Bush or any leader, aren't we speaking up? Yes, we could be hurt, but there are millions of us. We're uh, the majority. Instead, we go to the mall and shop till we drop. People are in debt like they've never been in debt before. Uh, uh, after 9-11, uh, the great catastrophe, uh, people were told, show America, show the world we're not afraid, go shopping. Go buy something, whether you could afford it or not. Why aren't we paying for this war? Why aren't we saying to our own children, all of them, you go to fight if this war is in fact so just? Why do we allow uh, the rich to get richer while the money comes out of the pockets of those of us who are middle class or poor? What is it that we turn away from? Our own fear? Do we feel like little children? helpless in the face of such power? I think so. I think that's very true. And we look up to these individuals. And most of them, we should be looking in the eye directly. And we should be recognizing they are more, no more or less knowledgeable or powerful than us. We have given them that power. And that power is being used so often in ways that are hurtful and destructive to us without any insight as to what's happening. And ultimately, these people are left bereft. They're left in chaos themselves. Their families suffer. Uh, their children write memoirs about what lousy parents they were and how they had nothing really to do with them. Well, I think I've said what I want to say. Uh, I think we're in grave danger. And unless I think we begin to speak truth to power and we speak up, and, and, and become part of the dialogue of running our own lives and not listening any longer to these individuals who are supposedly there to serve us when we know that basically over and over again the scandals tell us that they've been serving themselves or those close to them or those they think who are superior like them who in turn tell these powerful individuals exactly what they want to hear for some kind of reward that they get from being, uh, as we used to say in school, ass kisses, tushy lickers, brown noses, uh, individuals who live their life not as individuals creating their own life, but surrounding those of power and hoping for the crumbs <clears throat> to fall their way of whatever it is, fame or glory, to keep them from examining the terrors of their own life. It seems to me that growing up is a negotiation with your parents and with teachers 
so that you see them as merely human. That it changes from seeing them as the all-powerful, all-knowledgeable individual we need them to be in our lives as children, as infants and as young children, to people who ultimately we could look at, and even if we call them mom and dad, we see them as equal, we see their frailties, and we love them in spite of it, in the same way that hopefully they loved us in spite of our faults and our frailties. And it seems to me that this has to be the way in which we ultimately come to see the leaders that come before us and say, give me so much of the power of your life because I know what's good and best for you and I will use this correctly. Uh, have a happy holiday for the Jewish members uh, of, of my audience. A uh, happy new year and a healthy new year. And a happy and healthy new year to everybody. And uh, I hope the new year will be better than the one that just finished, even if for us personally, we got to the mall plenty of times and we got what we wished for, the toys and other things that make our life, we think, so much better while others suffer all over the world and we pretend it's not going on. We pretend that the cries that we hear are really not cries and we shut our ears even though we suffer and diminish ourselves as we do so. This is Dr. Simon. Thank you for listening, for those of you who did listen, and good night.